Uh, let's pray for the Lord's help. Gracious Father, we pray above all else that you would clear our minds um, of anything distracting us from the truth of who Christ is, what he's done in the past to win our freedom and our forgiveness, um, his resurrection and what that means for our hope, that you are still in control over this crazy world, and we want to be reminded of that this morning. We're bombarded by distracting things in the news, negative things in the news, and again, we just need to be reminded this morning that you are the sovereign over evil. So we pray in these moments that we have, you sharpen our minds and our understanding, and that the heart of this text would be taken to heart. Uh, I just pray that you'd help me with this and help us to understand this. Lord, we don't want to just um, have an intellectual understanding of a text of Scripture, but we want it to shape the way we live and shape the way we think, shape the way we feel. So I just pray for this. I pray for those in particular who are mourning here, who have lost someone, or just facing difficult circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would lift up their eyes to see you um, exalted, lifted up, and just rem be reminded that there is a good and loving God who is gracious and merciful. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So 2014, some of you will remember this, um, was the 70th anniversary of, of D-Day, um, when I think it was considered the largest amphibious assault uh, on the beaches of Normandy, uh, ever witnessed by history, uh, as well as a massive air force that went over and you know, attacked uh, Hitler's Germany. And the whole intent of that, that moment in history was to break the backbone of this evil empire, you know, run by a very evil, evil man. And break the backbone, it did. Um, they say D-Day, historians say D-Day was the time in which really the Third Reich was broken because of that event. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2014, they showed a lot of pictures, again, 70th anniversary of before and after. They had pictures taken in 1944 and then 2014 to show the difference between then versus now and the difference that 70 years make. So I'm going to show you just a couple of these, and maybe you've seen them before, but on the left there is a picture of all of these uh, boats coming in to do this amphibious assault. It's a picture of war. Um, of course, it's black and white. It's just kind of a dark picture. 70 years later, you look to the right and you see it's a place of peace and it's green. Like, I want to live in the place on the right, not the left. Another picture taken from the shoreline, you just see the wreckage, war, and then on the right, you see life, people on the beach having fun and enjoying life. It's like the old pictures before 1944 were filled with war wreckage, and on the right, there's this life and light and a sense of peace to it. As we come to the closing chapters of Revelation, I think this is kind of a, a good picture. Um, in order to bring down an evil empire, the pictures on the left had to happen. That is war. Now, we've been looking over the course of the past weeks at chapters 16, 17, 18, 19 of Revelation, and it's filled with war language, battle language. Beginning in chapter 21, however, we're not there yet. We're going to switch scenes. It's going to transpose, be transformed, so we're going to see life, light, flourishing, a new creation, and people dwelling in the very presence of God. So that's coming, chapters 21 and 22. But this morning, we turn our attention to chapter 20, verses 1 through 11, which give us, gives us a picture of the destruction of our arch enemy, the enemy of old, called by different names, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the dragon. 
So far, we have seen God bring down, bring to justice, the source of seduction, that is the harlot, the source of defiant human power, that is the beast, the source of deception, which is the false prophet, and last but not least, in terms of personifications of evil, the Lord is going to bring the devil down and destroy him, never to rise again. That's what's in view in these chapters, is the destruction of the evil one. You think about it for a second. You know, he appears on the stage of history in Genesis chapter 3, third chapter from the beginning. And he's destroyed, kind of symmetrical, third chapter from the end of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 is filled with light and life and flourishing. God looks at everything that he's created and says, it's good. Then beginning in chapter 3, we see the demise of humanity as, as our first parents listened to the whisper of the evil one and, and disobeyed. And the world has been a place of conflict and war and sin and corruption and death and betrayal ever since then. So here is this serpent that has basically existed for generations upon generations, decades upon decades, centuries upon centuries, millennia upon millennia, involved in people's lives, deceiving people's lives, seducing people's lives, involved in government and empire and destroying everything he possibly can. And finally, here, third chapter from the end, we find his destruction. Now, in many ways, this, these uh, 10 verses that we're going to look at, 1 through 10, um, are fairly straightforward. Like, the content is not hard to grasp. We have verses 1 through 3, we have the description of Satan is bound for a thousand years. Following that, we have this rather positive, exalted vision of the saints ruling on thrones for a thousand years. Verses 4 through 6, and then third, the third section of this vision, Satan is released at the end of these thousand years for a final battle. So fairly straightforward in terms of content. Now what binds them all together is this period called a thousand years. And that's the controversial part. How do we understand this thousand years? Like I said, as I opened up, this is the most hotly contested chapter in Revelation. Uh, Perhaps the New Testament Maybe the Bible, depending on which side you fall on theologically. Like I said, I'd rather sidestep this, um, but there is an application here. And at the end of this, if you disagree with me, as you come out in a different place, this is not an essential doctrine of the faith. That is, we should still be able to play cribbage, cornhole, and darts if you come out differently. This is not a hill I'm willing to die on. Now, I think we as Christians should be willing to die on the hill of grace alone, faith alone, the fact that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and one one person. Those are things we're dying for, not where you come out on a thousand years, okay? So enter into this with a sense of of humility. So let me proceed with caution. (laughs) I want to just break down four. I want to make four points of understanding to try and understand this and then finish off with four very brief reflections on its application. So, two parts, understanding and application. To me, the whole question of how you interpret this boils down to the answer, how you answer one question. Is this vision sequential to the visions before, or does it run in parallel? Sequential, we know what chronologically sequential means. Right now you're in church. After this, you're going to go to 
I don't know, Chipotle, you know, Chevy's, wherever you're going to go, you're going to have lunch. That's a, a chronological sequence. Are we to understand chapter 19 and 20 as sequentially chronological? That is, Jesus came back at the end of chapter 19. We saw it last week on a white horse, and the beast and his armies are gathered, and the, Jesus on his white horse is gathered, and of course, the enemy is destroyed without a shot being fired. That was the, the return of Christ. And there's little debate that chapter 19 talks about the return of Jesus, the second advent, okay? Almost everybody's agreed on that point. The question is, when you hit 20, are we dealing with something that takes place after that? So you have this binding of Satan, and he's thrown into this abyss, and it's sealed over him for a thousand years, and he's released a little bit later. Is that sequentially next in terms of history? A sequential view looks a little bit like this. The return of Jesus, chapter 19, 11 through 21, against the beast, there's this battle, and then the beast is destroyed. Then, following it, as it historically unfolds in the future, Satan is bound, there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus, most think, in Jerusalem, over the nations. And then the devil is released, is kind of like on parole at the end of this thousand years. He regathers people together in a final act of defiance and rebellion. Of course, that's yet another war, and he's destroyed. That's a sequential view, is 19 happens before 20. But there's another way of looking at it, and that is to look at this vision as a parallel to the one before. Now, I think we know what parallel is, too. If John in this section was to write about how good or bad this sermon was, and then Bill in this section was to write about how good or bad the sermon is right here, right now, those would be two perspectives on the same thing. That's a parallel view. And there's a lot to be said for that. That chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, runs parallel to the chapter before. Now, here I'm going to back up. Track with me, okay? It's, I hope it's going to become clear. Okay? Parallel. I'm going to rewind back to 16. All right? We read about a war. Uh, 12 through 14. This is bowl number six, the bowl of wrath. The sixth angel poured out his bowl. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So you have this release of these demonic beings for they are demonic spirits performing signs, signs typically to deceive, who go abroad to kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God Almighty. Now this is later referred to as, or the place in Hebrew as Armageddon. So here you have this demonic release. This is the, notice the flow. There's this demonic release, followed by all the kings of the world gathered into one place. There's a war, and there is judgment. Now, another point just to note. Something that's missing in our English translation is, is when it says, last line there, to assemble them for battle. In the Greek language, there's a the before battle. Now, the is kind of important. You know, my, give your mind a rest for a second. My daughter at college used to love to tell her friends uh, that her uncle's Dwayne Johnson. And he is Dwayne Johnson. And they're like, wait, your, your uncle's Dwayne Johnson, but you're white as a snowflake, and he's like Samoan. 
how could you possibly be related to Dwayne Johnson? And she'd say, well, he's adopted, which is true. Her uncle, this Dwayne Johnson, is adopted. They start looking up on their phones. Wait, is he adopted? Are you really related to Dwayne Johnson? The key question is, no, wait, are you talking about the Dwayne Johnson, like Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Now, that's altogether different. That, that means if fo focus your attention on one particular Dwayne Johnson, not just any Dwayne Johnson, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson. When we say the Bay Area, we know what we're talking about. When we say the Washington Monument, we know what we're talking about. A definite article makes something definitive. Here, it is the battle that happens. Not a battle, the battle. Just worth noting. Language is important. So, fast forward to chapter 17. There's another war. They are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. In other words, there's collusion. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. That is together. And the lamb will conquer them. Again, notice the flow. Kings of the earth are gathered, there's a war against Christ, and there's judgment. Skip to chapter 19, we looked at last week, again, notice the flow. This one deals with the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war, there's a the in the original before war, the war, against whom who is sitting on the horse and against his army. Again, no question, this is the return of Christ. Notice the flow. Kings of the earth are gathered. They make war against Christ. And there's judgment to follow. Question, are we talking about three different wars here? Especially when two of them have the word the in front of it. And then bring in, brings us to our text. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan, which simply means adversary, will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's taken from Ezekiel, to gather them for, guess what's missing before battle? The. I think it probably reads better than to say for the battle, but it's there. Um, you can talk to Sean Arvin, I think he knows Greek, he can tell you. Yeah, it's there, it's the, the. Again, devil is released, here's demonic release, Kings of the earth are gathered, there's a war, and there's judgment. Question for us is, with all of this, and notice the flow is the same. In two of them, the first description of war in chapter 16, there's this demonic release. And in the fourth war, there's the release of the devil from the bottomless pit. The flow is the same. So the question for us is, are there four wars? Or is he talking about the same thing from different perspectives? Now, John's visions work like that. His seven seals run alongside the seven trumpets, run alongside the seven bowls, so that by the time you get to the end, you're at the end every time. There are different parallels of the same thing. So why wouldn't he do the same here? Now, if, if these run in parallel, everything else falls into place. So that's the real question. So it boils down to how you answer one question. Do these run in parallel? And I am persuaded that they do. Now, how does it work out from there then? That was, by the way, the first 
point of understanding, and two, three, and four go far quicker. This is the foundation. If these run in parallel, if the war is one war, not four, then certain truths become clear. Two, the thousand years precedes the return of Jesus. Now wait, how does well, that slow down, Dan? Okay. If chapter 19 is, and all would agree, the return of Christ, and there's a war. It's the same war at the end of the thousand years when the devil's released for a short period of time on parole. Then the thousand years, by necessity, is before the return of Christ. Before. And, in addition to that, you're like, wait, what, thousand years? Most of the numbers, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, are symbolic. All of the sevens, the threes, the twelves, the 144,000, the cryptic 666. So most, if not all, of the numbers are symbolic. And then we come to this one, we want it to be literal. And yet the bulk of church history, they've believed that this was non-literal. That is, it's simply an expanse of time. Now to back that up just for a second, whenever you find the word thousand in the Old Testament, it's not literal. It's, it's a way of expressing mass or span. So God owns a thousand on, or a cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't mean God only owns a thousand hills. It's a way of saying he owns all the hills and all the cattle on those hills. But when it says in Psalm 90 that, you know, a thousand years is like a day for the Lord. A thousand years for us is, is a huge amount of time, but it's just a day for the Lord. That is simply a way of expressing an expanse of time. So, you know, the book of Revelation is so filled with the Old Testament, it makes sense. It's talking about an expanse of time. Now, that means, here's the kicker. If you follow me so far, we are living in the millennium. We're living in that time right now. This is describing the time in which we live. Now, I know you have lots of questions. You can always talk to me afterwards. I have two more points to make. Third, that means the saints in heaven that are viewed on thrones, that are ruling with Christ, that's not some future, far distant thing in the future. It's, it's, it's in the thousand years. It's, it's during this time. It's not just a future thing. It's a now thing. And hopefully I'll remember to do this. That would apply to first century, and it would appeal to first century believers who are losing loved ones. That is a rule. Now, now just with this in mind, just let's reread this. Verse 4. Right after the, the dragon gets thrown into prison, there are these thrones. He sees thrones, and seated on them were those whom, to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls, interesting word, choice word, souls of those who had been beheaded, that is, give up their lives for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, that is, they took a stand for Jesus and paid with their lives. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on his foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. I have to talk about that for a second. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God. This is a place of access and a place of intimacy 
and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. He sees souls of those who have been beheaded. That's the same terminology that's used in chapter 6, which I'll show you in a second, but where John sees and under the altar in heaven, he sees the souls of those who had been slain for the gospel, praying, how long, O Lord? And those who were praying in chapter 6 are now reigning in chapter 20. So you have verse 9 of chapter 6, just so you see it. Have eyes on it. I saw under the altar the souls. I would argue those are the same souls that are now on thrones. You're like, wait a second, hold on, stop. What about the resurrection, whole first resurrection thing? Obviously, we're not resurrected yet. My body still hurts. (laughs) Yeah, my back hurts. Picking up rocks yesterday. I'm not resurrected yet. Well, wait a second. Isn't there two senses of resurrection in the Bible? There's something called the new birth, being born again, which God brings the dead soul to life. He makes you alive together with Christ. And that first installment of resurrection, which takes place in here, and if you come to faith in Christ, like you trust in his death and resurrection and you want to follow him, guess what? Something supernatural happened in here. God woke you up. That's a resurrection. And someday, the second installment will be he will bring body and soul back to life. Or excuse me, soul back to resurrected body. And you will become one, a physical, spiritual being once again. And Jesus speaks of resurrection in this way. Same author of Revelation is the Gospel of John, where John quotes Jesus here, verse 25 of chapter 5, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, future, and is now here. Future, present, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, now and later. You hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done, and you're awakened? That's now. And someday, when he returns, we will meet him, and we will be resurrected physically. See, I think that's what's in view in the resurrection. If you've received the blessing of the first resurrection, well, the second resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is going to happen. It's it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen someday, and someday I'm not going to hurt. My back's not going to hurt. My elbows are not going to hurt. You're not going to hurt. We're not going to hurt. No more crime, no more conflict, no more sin, praise God. So here you have the saints in heaven rule now. Just, can we pause there for a moment and just think how this could be encouragement? You're facing death because you're a Christian. You refuse to bow the knee to, to Caesar. You refuse to offer incense to his image. And you know in refusing to do that, you're going to pay with your life and maybe your family's life. To know that, you know what? You can take my life, but guess where I go? You can put me down in the dirt, but I'll be exalted, and I'll help the Lord somehow, in some way, be involved in your judgment. It reminds me, and I I hesitate to use this because I'm going to come across like a Star Wars geek. And I am not. But I will back that up by saying, in 1977, when when the movie came out, I was 10 years old. And it was the best thing since sliced cheese. I saw it five times in a row. I don't even know how I afforded it. But I walked around with my little Luke Skywalker saber and you pretend, you know, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It was the best ever. 
There's this one scene that horrified me in one sense and didn't make sense till much later where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader are going at it and, and they're fighting and they're thinking, come on, Obi, take him down, Darth Vader. And Obi-Wan, he lifts his lightsaber up, not in a defensive position. He just says, you know, if you strike me down, I will be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Which case, you know, Darth Vader cuts him in half and he disappears. A Christian can look evil in the eye and say, you can strike me down. But understand that I will sit on a throne by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, because I'm his. That's the encouragement here. That would have real-time encouragement, is that you can take me down, but I'm going up. Take me down, but I'm going up. That'd be a, an encouragement. You don't have to wait forever. It just already starts. So, the fourth piece of this that I already hit. Um, you might say, wait a second, and I've already <laughs> ruined the punchline, but... You might say, wait, what about the, the dragon going into the abyss? Like he's chained, thrown into the abyss, it's sealed, and he's in prison. If you're telling me we're living in this thousand years of what it represents, an expanse of time, I look around, I read the news, both CNN and Fox, and I see this is a screwed up world. He's very much still in existence. So how in the world can you say that the devil has been imprisoned? Well, let's put it like this. What is the critical, central, pivotal event that broke his power? The cross. The death of Jesus wasn't just a small event in, in world history. It altered everything. It put him in chains. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've heard over and over again how Jesus conquered. He conquered by his own blood. So, Jesus says this to John in the opening chapter. He says, fear not, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, my blood, and behold, I am alive forever, uh, forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Key, authority. I have authority over death and Hades, the place of the demonic. It's mine, right? Which means the devil, post-cross, is on a very short leash. And that leash is held by who? Jesus. Severely limited. Bound. The irony is that when Jesus died, the chains broke off of his people and the chains were put on the dragon. He's a bound-up dragon. He's, he's under the control of another, or chapter 5, we read, John receives this word, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And the next scene, by the blood of the lamb, the slain lamb. Chapter 12, we read that we conquer by the same way, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how we conquer. All that to say, he is, the devil is on a very short leash. And I think that's what's in view. Does he still have influence? 
Yes, he does. But he's being severely monitored and restrained, and he can't do anything apart from the, 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 the allowance of the one on the throne, who's Jesus Christ. You've got to think of a pit bull. When Jesus says sit, it sits. When he says go, it goes. When he says lay down, it lays down. It wants to take more out. It wants to fight more, but he is on a short. He is bound right now. And at the end of time, we're told, at the end of this thousand years, and if we're living in that, then we can still expect in the future, as things come to an end, that there is going to be some leash given. With that, he was let out for a short period of time to deceive the nations once again, and there will be this final rebellion under his hand. But again, who's got the leash? Who's got the chains? The devil does. He's got chains on him. So, this is a picture of the exaltation of God's people who have been oppressed and killed and the demise of the devil. And at the end, he's thrown into the sea that burns with fire never to rise again. He'll never be seen. And that is the good news. Now, what do we take from this? Oh, you know what? I forgot a text. By the way, this is what Paul says, too. I just wanted to add another text. And he says, And you, talking to you, church, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Done. Finished. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Who's already in charge? Jesus is in charge. Paul would say, John would say. So, with that said, just four quick takeaways. What this does in this particular interpretation, to me, it magnifies the power of the cross. What happened at the cross was a world-altering event. It brought the kingdom of darkness into chains. So it magnifies the cross of Jesus Christ. Just like... When we come together at Good Friday, we should be like, wow, this is the day it happened. The foundations of the evil world have been put down by the death of Jesus Christ. Two, it teaches us that we win even if we die. And that's the, that's the, the, the power of it. It's like, you take my life, but I win in the end. We win in the end. I, we have nothing to fear. Our enemy is a destroyed enemy. He no longer has power over us, no more dominion over us. We're already free in Christ. So we have nothing to fear. And if you take our lives, guess what? We win. I think it's interesting, too. Dimensionally, the devil goes down and the saints go up. <laughs> goes down in the abyss and the saints are up on thrones. Three, it reminds us, if we interpret it this way, it reminds us that a massive deception is coming. We're told by Paul that there's, there's a restrainer, someone restraining the current evil. And that at some point it will be released. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and following. By satanic power and delusion. We can expect to come to a place where we're looking around at the world and, and thinking, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Like, there is no rationality, there's no reason, and there's, there's no way you can actually have a have a logical thought process and actually think that way. 
It's coming. Is it here? <laughs> That's a speculative thought on my part, but kind of feels that way. Recognize it is the work of the evil one. And guess what? We ain't going to stop that. What we can do is we can be Jesus-following, Jesus-loving, Jesus-sharing people who stay focused on the main task at hand. And fourth and final, just a reminder, the evil one who started it all in the beginning, chapter 3 of Genesis, is going to be plunged into the fiery sea, never to be seen again. And all of it, all of it, because of one person, Jesus Christ. The whole of, whole of the future depends on what we do with Jesus, whether we trust him, believe him, follow him. And I just encourage us as we live in this time, church, keep your eyes on him, keep your trust in him simple, follow the teachings of his word, learn to love each other, and share him with whomever God brings your way and gives you opportunity. Amen. Lord, we pray for your grace and mercy on your church, in our lives. We ask, God, that you would prepare us for um, spiritual battle and also prepare us to be people who are different, who think differently, live differently, love differently, parent differently, husband and wife differently, so that we might be able to share the life-saving grace and mercy of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.